James here. And David. Welcoming you to the first episode of Track Meet, the podcast where we pit songs against each other and judge them based on five categories. This week we are doing songs from the year 1965 in conjunction with the podcast that David and I are both on, Kids on Bikes, which is currently in an arc that takes place in 1965. Actually, we're probably about to start recording in 1966, it just occurred to me. But we got done with 1965. <laughs> exactly. So... In celebration of, of 1960, of survival. Uh... In celebration of having lived in 1965 for <laughs> for quite a bit of the uh, of the show so far, um, we're doing songs from 1965. It was a good year for music. Holy crap! It was a good year for music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was a it was like a so, transition year, right? Like there was so much there was there was this weird move from the normal everyday bubblegum rock stuff to. I mean, you know, Rubber Soul and Pet Sounds, we were in that middle period, and it was a fruitful time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was, it's a very interesting year because I think there are years where m- bigger albums came out, but this was a year where um, some very interesting, like you said, like transitional, if you, if you will allow me, the, um, we're sort of, the, 65 is sort of the middle of the Animorph cover. Like we're not quite the kid and we're not quite the animal, but we're in that very interesting middle middle section <laughs> where um, some weird and interesting stuff is going on. <laughs> if if you'll if you'll allow me to take it to the anamorphs level, now I'm just imagining think... Brian Wilson anamorphing, and it's bizarre. <laughs> uh, I feel like Brian Wilson anam- it was already halfway morphed to a golden retriever as it was, so. <laughs> So we're going to be judging uh, songs from 1965 on the basis of five categories. Uh, we're going to be judging based on music, lyrics, production, re-listenability, and a fifth category. Uh, the, this category is going to change for each theme. And uh, we're going to have a, a quick discussion here about what that's going to be. We're going to judge zero through four on those categories and uh just because it came up when i talked about the show with my dad this is based on our and if we have a guest our own subjective grading there's no like this is objectively a three on re-listenability if i if i can't stop listening to the archie's sugar sugar i have no idea if that came out in 65 (laughs) that was like 69 so (laughs) yeah um if i can't stop listening to the song then it's going to be a, a four. If you are like, I listen to this, I listen to this song exactly 0.75 times, then it's going to be much lower. Like, you know, I promise so now it, every, every song will get one entire listen. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So I just wanted to put it out there that like, we are not definitively saying anything. It's going to be basically like, I listened to the song and I felt this, David listened to the song and he felt that, and the, those are the grades it's going to get in the moment. I, I was I was going to go pull some Robert Crisco interviews. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm going to deep oh, dive this. Please, please, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> Our segment um, will be: right. What did asshole Robert Crisco have to say about this? <laughs> 
the the criteria for this is only bombs from Robert Kriska. <laughs> um, so um, obviously, the things that we're going to discuss in these intros are are two things in my mind. The one is going to be definition of terms if we if that's necessary. In this case, I feel like it's pretty obvious. It, the I think the song has to. E- I think you have to be there able to justify either the song or the album that it's from was released in 1965. I will give you. Um, if you can be like, this album came out in 65, even though the single was released in Britain in December 64, I'm going to give that. I'm going to, like, that's, we're not going to argue like, oh, but the album, blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. When, if you can make the argument that, that something containing the song was released in 65, compilations, I'm not really going to count, or soundtracks, like, that doesn't really count, but like, an album or a single that was released in 65 between January 1st and and December 31st, I think is, is pretty easy to count. The hard one I think is going to be, uh, that fifth category. I mean, I don't know. Like the, the first thought I had in my mind was how much does this feel like 1965? (laughs) Right. Which I know is vague, but there is, there is a vibe there. Does this feel like there is a, there is sort of a change in how we feel about things we are still very patriotic about the Vietnam War. <laughs> all, all but, uh, what's his name? Eva Destruction Guy. Barry McGuire, was... that's true. <laughs> but the student movements were only just beginning. Right. And so we are in a very Windsor changing time. So maybe, I don't know, uh, in terms of that feeling, are we thinking maybe something like turbulence? Maybe. Um, I, I feel like we could either... I like I like the idea of how much does this feel like 1965. Um, I think we could also say how influential on the rest of the sound of the sort of lean into like the transitional period that we talked about, and Ooh. I would be like, what did this song mean in terms of the rest of the band's career? That could be kind of an interesting way to take it too. No, I think that idea works perfectly. It can be sort of a, a join of those two of. Not only how did this how did this propel this group forward, but also what impact did it have on the sound that came after it? Yes, impact. I love it. I love it. So we'll be rating on a scale of zero to four on the impact of of the particular song that we picked. Okay, cool. I think unless unless you have anything else that you wanted to uh, discuss or get down, I think we can take a break, go pick some songs, and uh, and come back and battle. Let's do this song fight. And we're back. We have seamlessly transitioned to knowing uh, what songs we've picked, and uh, we're going to introduce them now. David, the theme is 1965. What is your pick? My pick is maybe the third biggest band in this in 1965, maybe fourth. Okay. It's the Birds with Turn Turn Turn. Okay. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this song? I mean, it was released in 1965. 
obviously, on Turn, Turn, Turn. I don't know, man. This song has always been one of those oldies that doesn't necessarily get the airplay like the other ones. Mm -hmm. Clearly a folk tune written originally by Pete Seeger uh, Mm -hmm. and transposed like a couple of keys down. It sounds really weird when you hear the Pete Seeger version. It's very like dark folky almost. Yeah. Because of how how low Pete Seeger went with it. Yeah. I mean, the birds are basically a cover band. Yeah. <laughs> Some of their biggest hits, yeah. you know, Mr. Tambourine sure. and this, were all written by other people because they were basically more talented musicians than mm. they were pure songwriters right away. Say We say that knowing that David Crosby went on to be one third of one of the greatest singer-songwriter bands of the 20th century. This song has also been sort of after Fortunate Son is sort of like heavily soundtrack synced. I, I think of like the Wonder Years, kind of like that that opening line is often used in sort of like, and it was the '60s, and and here we were in the '60s. Do do do. You know, this was the first song to appear after the Joe Cocker theme on the Wonder Years in the very first episode. So there's a there's a there's a reason for that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's it's also cited as maybe the very first giant pop rock anti-war anthem. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Sort of pre-war with there, which I'm going to get into the, with the lyrics cuz yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Okay. Do you want shall but, we uh, shall I introduce mine and then we'll get into various ratings? Of course, well, we need to we need to figure out our challenger here. Sure, the challenger also found influence from Pete Seeger, both the artist who who sang this and also uh, this song itself was based on a Woody Guthrie song that Pete Seeger, I believe, either wrote or co-wrote with Woody Guthrie called "Taking It Easy." It's also based on some Jack Kerouac stuff and a lot based on Chuck Berry's "Too Much Monkey Business." It's uh, Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues. John is in a basement mixing up the medicine. I'm on a pavement thinking about the government. The man in a trench coat batch out laid off. Says he's got a bad cough, wants to get it paid off. Look out, kid, it's something you did. God knows when, but you're doing it again. You better duck. It uh, kicks off uh, bringing it all back home, uh, which rarely i feel like gets cited as the actual album where dylan went electric um people often cite highway 61 revisited which was the next album also released in 65 um but this this album had uh, an electric side and an acoustic side and this song let off the electric side the the first side side a this is the first track on the album it's also bob dylan's first top 40 hit in america it peaked at number 39 i think you could probably make a contention also that it was the the song which uh, had the first music video or at least one of the earliest music videos uh in the format that we sort of now now know it uh on uh penny backer's don't look back uh they did a basically a film clip of the with bob dylan with the the cue cards and stuff. And Allen Ginsberg rummaging through trash in the back. And sort of just looking at the camera, like you're almost like, is that a cutout of Alan? Nope, he's moving. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, my uh, it's uh, Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues. So, for music, with Turn, 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 this seems hands down an easy four for me. Okay. I mean, let's start with the fact that the harmonies are insane. The, the way these guys harmonize together, 
by far and large, we hadn't heard this in rock music for sure. And I'd contend that very rarely did we even hear it in like folk. These guys put together harmonies like crazy. And then add on top of that what Roger McGuinn is doing with his guitar, which hearing it fresh now and listening to it a few times, yeah. I realized it was like, this is like ev- every single bit of where Johnny Marr got his sound for the Smiths. Mm. That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And R.E.M. got its sound. Like all of the jangly guitars yeah. that we heard in the 80s <laughs> come right from here. You know, the the simple fact that they've got three guitarists, which is how we get those intertwining riffs and Crosby on rhythm guitar, of all things. Yeah. Who's also playing out of his mind really well. Right. The drumming is insane. I didn't even think about it. Mm. But, like, mm-hmm. the drum fills on this song are kind of nuts, especially when they get into the chorus. Like, he's, he's just pounding away all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And the the key to it is that at no point does it feel like it's going off the rails because of that. It always seems cohesive. Yeah. So somehow these guys had lightning in a bottle to keep all of that together. And so I I don't I think there's no way to make a case other than a 4. Okay. I I think I I think I largely agree with you. Uh the music is on point. It's memorable and and it's distinctive. Like I said, the the opening the opening little bit is famous. I mean, you you can conjure up you know, the 60s just by three notes from this song. Everyone is uh, playing really precisely and uh, kind of stopping on a dime and starting again uh, in in a very enjoyable way. So I, I would agree. I'll give I'll, I would give that a four for Subterranean Homesick Blues. I gave it a three, and that is because even though it is the first time, really, un- I think it was the first single from Bringing It All Back Home as well. Um, so it was the first time we were hearing electric guitars in a Bob Dylan song. That part of the song doesn't really blow my mind that much. It's interesting and significant, but this isn't really distinct. I think you could point to a number of Bob Dylan songs from the era, from the same era that sort of start off sounding the same. I think that it gets some points for its significance, but I don't think it's a four. So that's why I gave it a three. Yeah, I give it a three as well. To me, what it really boils down to is it is unique because of its context. Yeah. And, I mean, this song moves at a clip. I didn't even realize that it's, you know, two minutes and 20 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> that he's able to pack this entire song into. Yeah. Um, so it's moving faster than a normal thing, but when you really break it down, it's just a basic blues riff. Yeah. The difference with D- what Dylan's band is doing here is they are sloppy on purpose. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the band that truly perfected that was crazy horse mm, mm-hmm. okay when we yep. get to the when we get to the late 60s and 70s and neil young and crazy horse that's who really brought that into the mainstream right. of the intentionally sloppy cocaine out blues rock right and i think this was like i think that you can if you if you go go and listen to um too much monkey business and taking it easy they're both on youtube you can hear exactly how they add up to this song like if you think of if you think of chuck berry while you're listening to this song you're like oh yeah no i see what i see like i don't i wasn't super familiar with too much monkey business but like think about maybelline while you listen to the song and you're like oh yeah no that's exact this is exactly 
Bob Dylan being like, hey, you know, what if Chuck Berry was talking a lot faster? <laughs> yeah, it's a, sh- it's a shuffle rhythm and a blues yeah. beat. Yeah. And Dylan manages to, you know, throw other stuff at the wall, which I know we're going to be talking about very soon. Very soon. <laughs> but first, we need to talk about the lyrics of Turn, Turn, Turn. Indeed we do. Indeed we do. Okay. So this has the uh, the wonderful distinction of being maybe the only number one hit in history whose lyrics come from before the birth of Christ? <laughs> Indeed. That's what it's cited as. So, yep. okay, I... Ecclesiastes. I, Ecclesiastes. So, you know, I was a church kid, and, and a church grown up for a while, too, and it learned a lot about Ecclesiastes. This is where I have a bit of an issue with the lyrics. Okay. Because knowing the actual meaning behind Ecclesiastes and what this song has done with it, it doesn't match up quite right. Okay. Like Ecclesiastes, the whole point is supposed to be there is no hope. I mean, it starts off vanity of vanities. All things are vanity. Okay. And this is like in the middle of this book, the whole point is what would the world look like without God? Okay. That's the idea of what Ecclesiastes means. So Pete Seeger takes it and moves some stuff around, admittedly, so that it'll rhyme better. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes just this pre-hippie war anthem, which is like, it's a little darker than that, though. On the other hand, I think the way that they did the music and the manner in which they don't just, like, completely plain 4-4 it out, kind of loop into the song, plays into that darkness a little bit. I mean, the way that I looked at it was, they're beautiful poetic lyrics. They really are. Yeah. I just, there's this weirdness for me of going... But that's not exactly what that means, right? Right. <laughs> like you, because you're, they're literally banking on the only thing you're going to listen to at the end is, I swear it's not too late for us to have peace. Right. Even though the whole point of the song is like, but there's a time for war and a right. time for peace, a right. time for joy and a time for tears. And it's just like, after, after kind of mulling that in my head, I just yep. went, okay, look, I think the lyrics are three because I think the, the poetry on its own is incredible. And I think they twisted it to make it kind of meaningless after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Sure. I I think I think I'm I'm also gonna give it a three. I think that yeah, it's a Bible verse. Um re reappropriated <laughs> the way that you do. I mean I, I always sort of took this as sort of like, you know how this too shall pass? You're supposed to think of that in both ways. Like you're supposed to say that during good times and bad times. Like right. This too shall people always say this too shall pass when it's a bad time, but you're also supposed to sort of keep that in mind when it's a good time too. That's yeah. sort of how I take this this lyric and this verse too, which is there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. There's there's a time for everything. I was not familiar with the history of Ecclesiastes, but it doesn't surprise me that it was sort of repurposed to have more of a contemporary meaning. I feel like Pete Seeger is very very good at sloganeering. Yes. Yeah. My God, is he. And It's uh, funny because Woody was never that way. Well, Woody why would... I mean, like... Straight dope. If your bro no was... What. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. Now, I don't know a ton about their relationship, but I feel like if my buddy was like Pete Seeger, I'd be like, okay, that's his thing. I'm going to be over here doing this other thing. <laughs> like, like, I think that they... I, I would imagine that it would be like, there's only room... You know, there, 
we only need one Pete Seeger. I'm gonna be I'm gonna be just over here being Woody Guthrie. Yeah, I think you know from from all I've ever seen is that Pete Seeger was Pete Seeger was the ultimate folky peacenik. Yeah, and you know was the politically active guy, and Woody was over there being like, I'm an Okie, okay? Yeah. Like I just. I came down to try to find work, and I sang some damn songs, and I care about these people. But I, you know, I'm I'm going to tell you exactly what I think, no matter what. Which is why I'll scratch this guitar kills fascists on yeah. on yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So in, I mean, in the end, I gave, I gave it a three. I think it was lyrics that people needed to hear at the time, even if they were not necessarily taking them from their original intent. So I think a th- yeah. I think a three. I don't think that these are any lyrics that anyone would be like lame. Like I think these are good, good solid lyrics, and I think that's a. I think that's a solid three. Yeah, that's what it, that's that's my thing. I guess I didn't want to go higher because number one, there's no originality, but two, that in in changing that meaning, they lose some of the depth mm-hmm. of what those words can mean. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I gave Dylan a four on the lyrics. Um, no way! Really? <laughs> um, I so gave, did I! That's shocking. I want to make it clear in this first episode that I'm going to not be comparing my fours across episodes. <laughs> so, a four I give... <laughs> just because I give Dylan a four doesn't mean Dylan is the is the archetype of a four. I'm basically going to go episode by episode. Just... In case that has context later in a different episode that we might be recording tonight. So, oh, of course. So uh, one of the cool things that I saw... So, I mean, these lyrics are, are amazing. Because they're, at the same time, incredibly Dylan-esque in that you're like, wait, what? But they're also so subversive. And, like, I saw... I was reading this thing on Wikipedia that was basically like, he took that Chuck Berry sound and basically was, like, telling a story of what it was like for basically the counterculture kids like day-to-day life johnny's in the basement mixing up the medicine was about uh making codeine in a basement so (laughs) starting off with the drugs and then you know don't trust leaders watch the parking meters like stuff like that i saw this thing that said um there was a 2000 study of legal opinions and bob dylan was uh, listed as the most cited by judges and lawyers. And the line that was most cited of the most cited was, of course, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, which is a piece of American literature. I mean, like, it, it it has done everything from apparently been cited by just any judge or lawyer who was trying to make that point to, you know, making being the name of a of a leftist, we're not going to get political here. A group of people, a group of kids, named themselves the Weathermen after this this line affect and created a terrorist organization. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, no, yeah. I mean they, we, we will call them what they were. <laughs> um, but it was like the seventies kind of terrorism, which is a little different. <laughs> they were safer bombs. <laughs> um, so I think that these lyrics are amazing and quotable weirdly like every time this song comes on i find myself amazed that the lyrics come so easily and do sort of flick off the tongue so easily because they're like if you wrote them down you'd be like put plants in the bed but the phone was like like what am i writing what is this nonsense but it's the rhythm of them and like i don't want to say that bob dylan didn't bob dylan did not invent rap but i think that this was the first time 
that white kids were hearing this kind of thing in a you know a top forty song by a white dude. You know what I mean? Like I think this was the this is one of the first appearances of. But he's just talking. He's just saying words. He's not saying like that kind of thing. He had done talking blues. I mean, sure, that's, absolutely. That's a little bit of that's a little bit of where this comes from is the Woody Guthrie talking blues song. Absolutely, that he had done in the early '60s. But yep. what he's done here is flip it, and the talking blues songs were always just you know him talking while he's playing the guitar over it. Right. What he's done is he's taken that and then he's thrown a backbeat over it. Right. And then parsed out the words so that they follow the rhythm. Right. Which you, which you point out so perfectly. And that's what immediately makes it unique. Right. And so then he's got a, the, the other thing you can see, because when you really actually read the lyrics as literature, you start to understand, no, there's a very clear logic of what he's talking about. Yeah. It sounds like word salad when you listen to it. Right. But it makes a lot of sense. And he's had to pare down and be very economic with his word choice so he can fit the the rhythm of the song. Right. Yep. That's what makes it so above what he's already done. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think I think that the talk like those talking songs are are frequently my favorite parts of of those early Dylan albums because you get a glimpse into his wit a lot yeah. more in them. This was the first time when he was like I guess in sync with the popular culture at the time, and so he could be charting with it. So that means it was making, or at least in my mind, that means it was making a bigger impact than the rest of the of the stuff he was doing. Probably due to the addition of that backbeat and the and the the sinking of the words with the beat and stuff. Plus, so yeah, he's I, just so he's just so freaking cool. He, he this is, is the moment of ultra cool Dylan. It's it's the coolest video. <laughs> Like, he's, like, not... It's not a cue card thing where, like, all the lyrics are written. It's, like, he'll put a couple of lyrics. He'll spell them weird. He'll, like... It's such a, like, thumbing the no, your nose at this medium that is being created. Like, it's like it's so weird that he was already railing against this thing that was new. <laughs> like and there's, and there's a couple of moments where he's like, he's looking at the cards like, really? I wrote that? Like, <laughs> it is. It's, it's insane. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy that that's, that's the opening of that movie. Like that is the first three minutes of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, no, four, four across the board. All right. And that was that. All right. So then I have production is next. That is what is next. All right. All right. This bird song. Yeah. And Terry Melcher. Hot damn, man. <laughs> this song uh, could have been done today and sounded exactly the same. I think you're right. Like, the only giveaway is the sound of the equipment itself. Mm. The, the actual, like, the limitations of the guitar amps and the microphones are the only thing that would give away that this was made in 1965. Yeah. It is so crisp and so clean and so subtle. They they don't overdo it. I feel like there's at least some type of rotating speaker on their voices, but it could just be the way the harmony's bouncing in the room. Mm-hmm. Like there is this kind of swirling effect to it, but regardless, yeah. it's every touch they've made was so intentional 
and not over the top with this song to let the music speak for itself. Right. So yeah, hands down, it's a four for me. Cool. I'm hoping through this podcast to get a better f- sense of production. I think I'm a sucker for good production, sort of seeming like it's not like it's not there. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah. So I think that I'm going to agree with you because I, I feel like all the instruments are they sound good. They sound good together. There's nothing that I would be like. I can't. That I'm not like. I can't really hear the the lyrics, I can't really hear XYZ. I think I hear everything that I'm supposed to hear as crisply as I'm supposed to hear it. So I'll, I'll go with yeah. I'll go with a four on that one as well. Well I would say with production, like it depends on the song and the genre. Yeah. I mean it, Stay it, it tuned, really folks. depends. <laughs> yeah. Well because like there there are certain there are certain types of songs I don't want to burn anything, but I mean, there there are certain times where it's like, no, we the band specifically doesn't want you to hear the lyrics because that's part of where they're going. With right. It. Right. Like we want you to struggle for that because we want you to be in in sort of that haze with us. Right. So it it, it very much depends on what it is. But right. for this song, like it just it works so well. <laughs> right. Yeah. For Subterranean Homesick Blues, I feel like. <sighs> I think that the production's fine. I don't think it's... Like, again, I can hear everything I think I'm supposed to. I can hear the acoustic, I can hear the electric, I can hear Bob Dylan's voice. I mean, we're we're doing good here. I think I might give it a maybe a three and a half, maybe? Huh. I, I don't know. I think that it's fine. I just... It doesn't feel like it's like... Because like, you don't want like overly produced. You want well-produced. I don't know. I think I'm. I think I'm gonna give it a three and a half. Yeah, I went. I went three, just off the vibes of what I was listening to. Because again, this yeah. is this is in- incredibly subjective stuff. I mean, right? Of course. You of know, course. if we were if we were talking to an actual engineer, it would be like, no, it's a four. I mean, look at what they're doing here, and this right. is like, okay, but like, I don't hear that. Right. And again, it could be um, it could be that thing of like, you don't hear it because we don't want you to hear it. Exactly. But I don't. I don't know. Yeah. For me, it's it's not... I mean, two would be a mediocre middle of the road. Well, they just sort of slapped the song together. Right. And I think there's some intentional choices here. Because like we said, you do notice some of the laziness in the instrumentation. Mm, mm-hmm. that, that's clearly intentional. So there's a little bit of that. What I don't think is that there's a lot of forethought in production on how we could almost give it more bite and aggression. Yeah. Which I know at in 65, without a lot of experience with electric instruments, who knows how many people in that room would have understood what to do. Right. But I feel like there could have been some choices to add a little bit more bite to this song. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. his singing is incredibly tense right. and angry. But the rest of the song is kind of loping along and kind of has to catch up to him. I think that's where we don't get to the full four for it. Do you know who produced? I, I think I I think I want to have um, I want to give credit to the producers when when we can. Um, do you know who produced this? Can you? I don't remember. Uh, let I me, mean, let me Google it real quick. I feel like I feel like Cooper might have produced this album. He just wasn't playing the organ on it yet. Uh, it looks like Tom Wilson. Produced okay. the album, and let's just double check that he probably produced the single too. Yep, Tom Wilson, um, not Thomas Elf Wilson, who played Biff in Back to the Future, 
but Tom Blan- Thomas Blanchard, Tom Wilson Jr., uh, he worked with Bob Dylan, The Mothers of Invention, Simon and Garfunkel, The Velvet Underground, um, Nico. Okay, Eric, yeah. him working with the vel him working with the Velvets makes a ton of sense. Yeah, a ton of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that sound is coming right from this record for sure, just with much louder instruments. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then the birds was ter- was Terry Melcher, right? Yep. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's talk about re-listenability. All right, now here's here's where I'm going to go a little low for this song. Okay. I think the song's great. I really do. After about three or four listens, man, <laughs> this song is a, is one verse and a chorus too long. Mm, okay. They go, they go three verses and choruses in a row. And, of course, the choruses are all different. Then we have an instrumental break. Then we do one more verse and chorus, and then we do a coda. Right. And it's just like, guys... <laughs> So you're saying 10 hours of this is not going to be on your YouTube plays? <laughs> no. I mean, I, I, here's the thing. When you first hear it, you're like, wow, this is cool. And by about the fifth time, you're going, okay, I can come back to this in like a couple of months or so. <laughs> I don't want to say like it's a mediocre song, but I went two and a half because I do think it. after a while, it's just dragging on you. Okay. I haven't we don't had have to we don't have to agree. No, I'm not going to agree. I'm trying to think about if my disagreement is cuz I haven't had the experience of I need to add this to my process. I haven't I need to probably listen to a song 3 times in a row and see if I'm still down with it after 3 or 4 times in a row. I haven't had that experience. So I don't know how I would feel. However, I think I'm going to give it a 3. Cuz I think okay. that it's not like God, please let me listen to this song for the rest of my life. Like, I'm not at the level of I wanna I wanna only be listening to this song forever. But I am at the at the point of I can't imagine this song coming on and me not being like, no, all right, yeah, I'll listen to this. So I'm gonna give it a three. It's totally fair. All right, back to Dylan. All right, so for re-listenability, I think I'm gonna give this one a three as well for kind of the same reasons. Like, it's a good song. But I didn't find myself being like, let me listen to that again. But I also, when I was listening to it, I was like, yeah, I'm liking this. This is good. But I can also see a, a world where, like, oh, no, the iPod's stuck on repeat. Or, you know, the record is, I only have this record and I'm on a desert island or whatever. I can imagine this getting old fairly quickly. It could, I could see it getting a little samey once the amazing lyrics kind of maybe wore off a little bit. So I think I'm going to give this one a three in terms of re-listenability. I did that as well. It's like a full meal in two and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Like you are satisfied after you hear this song once. Yeah, and it's like let that lie, let it sink in for a while, and then come back to it. You know, later when you're like, okay, I want to, I want to see what else I catch this next time around. Right. But I, I think if you kept trying to listen, to, like it's, it's not a pop hit that I just want to keep hearing over and over again. Right. Yes, I agree. Now we're on to the special category. Special category. I wrote influence. Is that what we decided? Like how important well, what was we, this? What, where we were going was how much does this because 1965 was such a transitional year right how much does this a feel like 1965 but more importantly influence what was coming in the counterculture 
Okay. All right. So what what was what was coming in music and how and what kind of impact it had later on from there? Okay. Cool. So the birds. Who's ever heard of this song, David? First I of don't all. know. <laughs> so under the radar. I mean, God, the Beatles and Dylan were around. Who cared about the birds? I gave this a four. Yep. And I gave it a four not only because, I mean, clearly it had an impact. Clearly people did that. You know, if I'm really looking at it, I want to think more about the, the subjective ideas of that. To me, up until this point, you don't really hear songs that have more of a looping rhythm mm. that are kind of swirling around you more than they are in, in just sort of a straight pattern song. Yeah. Like, this is that very first swirly hippie vibe that, you know, I, I don't know that you see that a whole lot, even from the Beatles, who I don't know that they really got there until Revolver. Maybe yeah. a little bit with Rubber Soul. But Rubber like, Soul a little, the yeah. First, but Revolver's the first time we really hear that from them. Yep. So the birds managed to Which, come to be fair, was a year later, so let's not... <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> the other side of yeah. that is clearly they heard what these guys were doing. Yeah. And, and realized, oh, wow, this is an interesting direction that we could go in. Yeah. There's something about that. There's something flowery about what they're doing, mm. which really plays into that flower child idea. Yeah. Roger McGuinn had this very unique ear mm. and really went in a direction that I don't know that anybody else had gone yet. Yeah. And clearly all of pop music followed his lead after that. Mm. So to me, it's got such a huge impact on where mainstream pop rock went in the 60s that I don't I think it's undeniable how much this was unique and of its time and then pushed music after that. Yeah. I I agree with all of that. I gave it a 4, um of course. I mean like I feel like it earns a 4 just based on its 1965iness and then yeah. everything else is just sort of gravy. So yeah, I think this is definitely a 4 with a bullet like no 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 questions asked um good job roger mcguinn good great job everyone um <laughs> bob dylan's subterranean homesick blues i think also gets a four from me but maybe from the exact opposite place i think it's the <laughs> i think it's the opposite side of of the coin i think that this song doesn't necessarily sound like 1965 because like i mean let's face it if you were like Dylan, 65, go. There's no way you think of something from this album when you no. also have Highway 61 Revisited coming out later that summer. Like, yeah. he had a big 65. <laughs> like, um, God. <laughs> um, so I think that, but I think it's influence not only on Dylan, like, that he saw this as sort of an off-ramp, was is clear. And I think that you, you would see lots of, of stuff like this you know, later on in bringing it all back home, and later on in his career, like Highway 61 revisited, and um, and Blonde and Blonde especially, um, but I think it also influenced the counterculture, if in no other way than giving them stuff to write on signs. Um, I think that uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like I think that it it was a a way of describing dissent. 
and a way of describing subversion in a way that sort of was uh, deceptively pleasant, but also jarring. Like, I, I know that that what I just said to my own ears right now as I'm talking sounds like I just entirely contradict myself, but like, I feel like it was like, oh, look at this weird new thing that Dylan's doing. Oh, that's so weird. Eh. But like, to people that were listening and li- and reading the lyrics and like thinking about it, it had to have sounded like a revolution. Which honestly is, I feel like how most people approach Dylan. Yep. Period. Yep. Like you, you hear it one of those two ways. Either you just they're like, okay, whatever, this is a weird dude, or you're like, holy crap, this guy's amazing. What is he doing? Right. Like, yeah. It, it, it it's one or the other, and he does not care whether or not you feel one way or the other. Right. Yeah, Bob, we've learned. Um, Bob, Bob, Bob Dylan doesn't Dylan, care about you. <laughs> no, he really cares about the dollars, and that's about it. <laughs> um, for me, I gave it a three and a half, and I the only reason I took that half point off is the influence. I think is far far more underground and not nearly as pronounced. Like I agree with you that you know it gave them the slogans. But in some ways, it's it's that thing of, like, it's a little more descriptive than it is proactive, which mm. is kind of a weird way to say that. But the influence was clearly describing what was going on at the time, messing around with the forms that he already knew, right. and pushing in that direction. But, you know, f- for me, what's a song that really, you know, pushes that envelope is then what comes after with Like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. That's the one to me that's like, whoa, this is entirely different and new. And this one definitely has kernels and seeds of it, but it just has that tiny little edge taken off of it. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting because I think that it's so weird to me that Like a Rolling Stone came before She's Leaving Home. Because She's Leaving Home sounds feels to me like a prequel to Like a Rolling Stone. Like, <laughs> she leaves home, she goes off and works and whatever. Oh. And then she does that doesn't work out and and you know, now she's homeless. Like this the the storiness of like a Rolling Stone, um, along with its um, you know, the 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 sound of it and and um sort of a weird I, I, I would I would hesitate to say passive aggressive because it was sort of just aggressive aggressive takedown of kind of the master he is the master of aggressive (laughs) passive aggression yeah exactly (laughs) it's interesting because i think what you see as i think i see the same thing in this in subterranean homesick blues i think that i look at like if you look at the album before someone made it really big i feel like you can often find like you said the seeds and kernels of what what would be the sound that would got them big and i always find that to be really interesting in kind of a raw way that i always sort of give a value to but in this case in this case i can absolutely see uh three and a half um because it was like yeah no that's this is good and all but like can you do better and bob dylan's like watch me (laughs) (laughs) hold my beer (laughs) yeah which is kind of what he's done most of his career play it fucking loud (laughs) (laughs) all right so i have our final tallies and let me tell you what math is so hard but um, I remind me to give Whitney major kudos for having. Oh, she probably edits. I'm an idiot, so <laughs> she probably adds up after the fact. Anyways, uh, winning by one and a half points, 
we have The Birds win by one and a half points uh, for Song of 1965. Congratulations to The Birds, Roger McGuinn et al. And congratulations to you, David. Hey, look, Subterranean Homesick Blues is no sleeper. I love that song. <laughs> it's- and hopefully... Uh, we should talk about that, you know, once we get through this run of songs, there's yeah. going to be a second chance bracket yeah. here. Yep. We've Absolutely. got 16 teams, but high scorers have a chance to make it in. Well, I think it's really interesting, too, because I feel like Dylan would have won in a different category. Like, I feel like yeah. for 1965, I feel like the, the, the more 1965 e song won. So I think that's going to bring us to the end of the inaugural episode of Track Meet. You can visit us on our uh, on Twitter at TrackMeetCast. You can visit us on our blog at TrackMeetCast.home.blog is the name of our blog, is the name of our thing. You can find us on Facebook. Yeah, we have a Facebook group, and we have an email TrackMeetCast at gmail.com. We've got all sorts of places you can talk to us. James, where can they find you directly? You can find me directly. Uh, on Twitter at Unabashed James. Hey David, where can they find you directly? Uh, at Big Macintosh, or you can search my name on Facebook, and I'm all around there too. Just look for the Big Macintosh pony, and you'll see me. Perfect. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode, David. What's our catchphrase? Hashtag Song Fight. Hashtag song fight.